This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. I am uh, I'm confident that God uh, has something for us today. Um, I, I just really feel like the devil was doing his best to um, not let this happen. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm excited for what God is going to have for us. Mark chapter 6 uh, we're going to be in another famous uh, story today, Jesus walking on water. Again, if you have been in the church for any length of time, you've probably heard this, this story of Jesus walking on water. In Matthew uh, 14, we see this story as well, and, and we also see Peter um, joining Jesus on the water in Matthew 14. And John also records uh, this, this account of Jesus walking on water. And that's stunning, right? Like, I... I I don't know about y'all, I've yet to, like I could float, kind of, for a little bit. But like when I try to stand on the water, I, I, I sink. Everybody, yeah, everybody else there too? Yes, good, great, we're on the same page there. So the fact that Jesus is suspending gravity and walking on water is meant to be stunning and astounding, but I really think there is something even more astounding in this story than Jesus walking on water. So uh, let's, let's go ahead and read it, and then we're just going to talk through it. All right, so Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. I get that. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I mentioned last week that we're all the time telling our kids to trust us, that it, that it will ultimately go better for them if they trust us, if they believe that we have their best in mind and that we're, we're leading them towards the best, that if we say something and they're like, that doesn't make sense, ultimately trust us, it will result in your best. You want more freedom with your life? Trust us, right? The freedom increases. You want less freedom? Don't trust us, right? The freedom decreases. So we're telling them all the time. Um, and, and as a, a human being and a parent, I oftentimes find myself frustrated when I'm like, why do you not get this? Like, what, what do you not, why do you, what is so difficult here to understand? We're saying the same thing over and over and over and over again, right? Um, an example is teaching our kids to ride the bike. Um, I, I, my patience goes out the window real quick. Any, anybody else ever like try, I know we have a younger crowd. Any, you're with me, Mike, thank you. Oh my gosh, right? I'm like, okay, we can do this. And, and so we get them on the, the bike and I realize riding a bike is not easy, right? You're balancing on two wheels. If you've never done it before, right? Like the distance from here to the ground feels like you're 20 feet in the air, right? Like it, so in your head, you're like, I'm out of control and I'm gonna die on this bike. I'm gonna either crash onto the ground or into that parked car or, or whatever, right? And so as parents, what do we do? We, we run alongside them. We, we hold on to them. We hold on to the seat, right? Like we, we ease them into that. And so 
I tell Miles, right? We worked on it yesterday. And Stephanie was like, did you get frustrated? And I was like, I started off real good. <laughs> Y'all know where that goes, right? And so, uh, like, I'm sitting there and I'm holding the bike. And I'm like, hey, dude, trust me. I will not let you fall. I'm like, how many times have I let you fall? And he's like, none. I'm like, so why do you, why do you still think? Like, so he, like, he gets so timid. I'm like, I just need you to go for it. I will be here and catch you. And I just get so frustrated so quickly when like, he won't even really try because he's, he's so nervous of falling. And I'm like, dude, I have caught you every time. Like, why are you not just, like, I'm here. I'm good for it. And so that's what we have with the disciples here, right? It's the same message. Trust me. I can do all things, and yet their hearts are hardened, unwilling to ultimately trust Jesus. And yet the good news of Jesus and the good news of God, where, where I lose my patience and, frust- and I get frustrated, gosh, the patience of Jesus is astounding, like absolutely incredible. His patience with us when we're staring in the face of truth is astounding. So th- there's a lot in this text. So, so let's jump in, buckle up. Like we're just, gonna, we're just gonna work through it all the way through this story, okay? So verse 45 again, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. What's the immediately following? The, the feeding of the 5,000. Right? If you missed last week, there's a crowd of 5,000 men, so, so more than 5,000, and they've been there all day long, and they're out of food and water. And so the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, common sense idea, let's call it a day, right? Send them home so they can make a sandwich, go to sleep, we can pick back up later. And Jesus is like, no, no, you feed them, right? He literally commands them to do the physically impossible, you feed the 5,000 plus people with the no food that you have, right? He literally commands them to, to do the impossible. Why? Because he's mean, right? He wants to tell us to go do something that we can't do. No, because he wants to demonstrate that with him, all things are impossible. He's trying to sink it into their minds and their hearts that with Jesus, the Son of God, literally all things are possible. They can trust him. If he said it, he will do it. If he tells them to do something, he will equip them to do that, right? And so he's trying to, he's using these miracles, these supernatural events to show them that they can trust him, right? And so he does. He takes five loaves and two fish and he blesses it, and he passes it out, and it says that everyone ate and was satisfied. They were filled by the work of Jesus, and there were leftovers galore, right? So Jesus literally does the impossible. Hey, trust me, I got this, right? Like, we are right here, boys. Look what's happening. None of them had food. Now they're satisfied, and we got leftovers for the week, right? Like, trust me. And then he sends them into the boat. Immediately, he sends them into the boat to go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd, right? So, so imagine here, right? Like Jesus like, hey guys, hop in the boat, go over there, I'll meet you over there. Hey crowd, it's been great, I'm glad you're full, head home, right? Jesus dismisses the crowd, and then it says, 
after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. Right? So Jesus, like we can ask, like, why did Jesus send them in the boat? Like, was he, was he planning this, this whole walk on the water thing? Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But what we do know is that Jesus wanted some time alone with his father. Like, what we know for certain is that Jesus just needed to refuel in communion with his father. So that's a good thing to learn if Jesus needs to take time to abide with the Father. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can do it without abiding in God. Like we're just, we're just kidding ourselves. And so Jesus sends them ahead and he stays back to spend time with the Father. But there's something else to note here. Right, there's something else to note here. It says then in verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the land and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Right, so what Matthew and John tell us is that they had gone about three to four miles into the Sea of Galilee. That evening comes, Jesus sends them out into the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side, and several hours later, they are only three to four miles into the Sea of Galilee. I did some math with the help of a friend who's a rower, and I asked him, I was like, hey, what's a good mile row time? And he said a solid crew of eight could row a mile easily in six minutes. Like, pretty easily, a good row team of eight could go a mile in six minutes. So let's say they're just an adequate row team of eight, right? Let's double it. Twelve. Let's go ahead and 15, 20, right? They're three to four miles out, and it's been hours. And these guys have spent some time on the water. Like, they're, they're former professional fishermen. They know how to row a boat, and they are going terribly difficult into their trip. Why? Because Matthew says that the wind was beating against their boat. Mark says that they had a terrible headwind, right? Like they are just straight caught in a struggle of epic proportions, just getting beat up by the elements of the wind. Why are they in that storm? Because Jesus told them to go. The only reason they are in that struggle of the dark night is because Jesus told them to get in a boat and go, and they obeyed. The only reason they're just getting beat up by the wind and the waves, that they're struggling and grinding and pressing forward and yet barely moving is because they are obedient to the command of Jesus. And so we need to know that sometimes being obedient to Jesus does not mean the circumstances of our life are going to be great. In fact, we can be assured that being obedient to Jesus will mean that sometimes the circumstances of life are not great. Jesus tells us, in this world, you will face tribulation. That is a promise of Jesus. Sometimes it is the obedience to follow Jesus that actually leads us into the dark night of struggle. 
Sometimes it is the obedience to Jesus that leaves us exhausted and worn down and tired and vulnerable. Sometimes it's the obedience of Jesus that ends up isolating us from people because we hold tight to the convictions of God's word when they disagree with it. Sometimes it's our obedience to follow Jesus that that removes us, that isolates us from our family because they disagree with our faith in the way that we're following Christ. Sometimes it's going to be our obedience to Jesus that will call us to give up preferences for the sake of furthering the kingdom. Sometimes it's the obedience to Jesus that is going to call us to live simply and meagerly so that we can be generous with others. Sometimes the obedience of Jesus is going to call us to be tested and put a spiritual target on our back because we're stepping into the front lines of what Jesus has told us to do. Sometimes being obedient to Jesus is going to call us to lay down our schedules and our preferences and our very lives for the name and sake of Jesus. Following Jesus does not mean it's always going to be easy. And in fact, following Jesus guarantees that sometimes it will not be easy. That he is going to call us and lead us into a dark night of the struggle. But here's what we also have, is that we don't have to fear because while it's dark around us and we can't see, Jesus sees us and he comes to our aid and he brings us help and he's patient with us as we struggle forward. We see in verse 48, right? They're out in the middle of the ocean, the sea, struggling, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. They couldn't see Jesus. All they saw were the circumstances around them the wind beating into them. But the confidence, the faithful promise we can stand on is that Jesus sees us. That no matter where you are, in the dark night of struggle or when the sun is shining on you, Jesus sees you. Our God sees you. That no matter how the circumstances are in life, whether we're healthy or sick, whether we're rich or poor, whether we have good relationships or not, our God sees you. And it says here, right, that he he meant to pass them by. Like, that's a weird statement. Like, Jesus comes walking and he meant to pass them by. Okay, what, why? Like, I don't understand that. Here's, here's what I think. I don't think Jesus ever intended to get in the boat. Like this is just in reading Matthew, Mark, and John. I, I don't think Jesus ever intended to get into the boat. I just think Jesus saw them in their struggle and meant to come to their aid and to bring them to the other side. 
I just think he meant to come and to help their struggle, to help them in their dark night of struggle, right? Because it says that when he gets in the boat, the wind ceases, right? So with his presence comes in an end to the chaos. And John says that when he gets in the boat, immediately they're on the other side. So I actually think that Jesus, he saw their struggle and he was like, I'm gonna come to their help. And the best I can understand it, he was just gonna come and walk beside them and basically bring with him a calm to the storm and bring them to the other side. Because Jesus sees and he comes to our help. He sees you. He, see, he sees you and he comes to our aid. He was, he was coming to their aid. Psalm 139, if you're like, I don't know if God sees me. Right? David wrote in Psalm 139, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness of the sea of Galilee shall cover me and, light be about, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God sees you. If you were to ascend to the heavens right now, he sees you. If you were to descend to Sheol, he sees you. If you're sitting in a building at 5925 Dillard Circle in Austin, Texas, the God of this world sees you right here, right now. In the Gospels, in Matthew, Jesus says that, that he sees every sparrow that falls. Of course he sees you. He sees the hairs that fall off of your head. Our God sees everything about us. He knows our thoughts before we speak them. He knows the intentions of our hearts. He sees you right here and right now. He knows if you're struggling or if you're, if you're doing well. He knows what was happening last night. He knows what was happening Friday. He saw you on Thursday. He saw you on Wednesday. He sees us every moment of every day. Our God sees us because he is living and active. Now that can be terrifying. But God intends for it to be comforting because he sees you and he comes to our aid. Now, if you're like me, you may be thinking like, man, does he, okay, God sees me, but does he really actually, like really come to our aid? Does, does God really care about our lives on September 5th, 2021 in Austin, Texas? Like, is he really here and coming to our aid? And the answer is a resounding yes. And first and foremost, it's for our own souls. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. I love this verse. If you want to memorize a verse, gosh, I just, I think this is a great one to memorize. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's God coming to our aid. See, we were created not to be spiritually poor. God created us to be spiritually rich in his presence. He created us and gave us everything with him. We, like the younger brother with the prodigal father, chose to take the gifts of God and to go our own way. We chose to squander his blessings. We chose to waste everything he gave us. We chose to dig our our beds in the mud and to find ourselves at the bottom looking for help. We chose to take the wealth that God gave us and to waste it and to walk away from him. Jesus, he had the right to be rich. He never messed up, he never walked away, and yet in incredible grace, even when we already wasted the gift that he gave us, he willingly made himself poor so that he could give us his riches. That is astounding grace. I, I struggle to treat people like that on a basic level much less if I already gave them everything, they rejected me, walked away, and wasted it, I'm gonna be real hesitant to say, hey, let me do this again for you. And Jesus, though he's rich, makes himself poor so that you and I who are poor could be made rich by his poverty. That is God coming to our aid and giving us the greatest thing we possibly could need, which is his grace. But then, he doesn't stop there. John 14. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 27, John says, peace I leave with you. This is quoting Jesus. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So God gives us the grace of restoring us into spiritual riches in his presence and then he gives us his spirit the helper to dwell in us he comes to our aid by giving us the spirit of the risen savior peace he leaves with us in his spirit so if our souls are troubled we have the help of God by his spirit who gives us the peace of Jesus Christ it is there in us If we're struggling with this sin that we just can't seem to get past, God has come to our aid and given us the spirit of Jesus' self-control. We are actually able to say no to sin and yes to holiness. When we're struggling with, with resent or bitterness or unforgiveness, 
Guess what? God has come to our aid and the spirit of Jesus' forgiveness lives in us and helps us to forgive as he has forgiven us. If we're just struggling with patience when you're trying to reach our kid or teach our kid to ride a bike, guess what? God has come to our aid and the spirit of Jesus' patience lives in me, enabling me to be patient with those around us. When I'm struggling with joy, and it's just, it's just hard to be joyful, guess what? God has come to our aid and given us the spirit of Jesus' joy that lives in us. So yes, he has come to our aid. He's come to our aid. He sees you and he's come to our aid. We have to learn to walk in the help that he has given us. To trust him. Even then you may look at it and you might go, well, he changed their circumstances. Like he literally changed their circumstances. What about ours? Is he going to come to our aid and change the circumstances that we have? Maybe he can. I mean, Charlie shared this morning, he shared it publicly there, so I'm, I'm assuming it's okay here, right? He had, an inf- he had an infection in his nose for two weeks. And then he was like, man, I was just driving one day and I was like, I haven't even like gone to the Lord with this and like asked him to, to heal me. He said that day the infection went away, that he could literally feel a change in his nose. So yeah, sometimes God comes and changes our circumstances. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're being thrown into an execution chamber and the spirit of God comes and dwells with them and brings them out unharmed. Yeah, he changed their circumstances. Daniel's thrown into a pit of hungry lions. Guess who was still alive the next morning? Daniel. Because God changed their circumstances. So yes, he can change our circumstances. He can. He's able to do the impossible. But he doesn't always. I'm certain John the Baptist was in prison praying for deliverance, and the only deliverance he got was from his head as he was executed for his faith. Most of the apostles of Jesus Christ were executed and martyred for their faith. You go read Hebrews 11, and you see people who died because of their faith. I'm sure they were praying for deliverance, but God didn't change their circumstances there. So yes, he can, but he doesn't always. But what we do know is Philippians 1.21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so, yeah, if he doesn't change my life circumstances, praise God, I got eternal glory. We see in James chapter one, where he tells us to rejoice in trials of various kinds, even if he doesn't change our circumstances, because in the trials, he's developing in us a steadfastness and equipping us for every good work. So maybe God's not changing our circumstances because he is doing something good by leaving us in it. Man, I don't know about y'all, but when, when things are hard, especially when they've gone past the time limit in my mind that I think they should go to, right? When it's like, okay, that was enough. We'll be done now. And God's like, ah, nope. That's when I start to really lose it when I think this should be over. Man, I think the disciples are looking at this and they're like, we should have been to the other side hours ago. We should have been over there. We should be done with this. Jesus could have calmed the storm from his perch on top of the mountain where he saw them. 
but he didn't. Because there was something good he had for them through the struggle. And if the disciples at mile two were like, this is too much, let's go back. They're the ones that are gonna miss out on the miracles that God has for them through the struggle. So yes, he sees you. Don't let the devil tell you otherwise. He comes to our aid. He's already done that by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and by the giving of our spirit. And he is able to change our circumstances and sometimes he does. We pray and we ask for that. But sometimes he leaves us in the struggle because he has something good for us through the struggle. And if we quit too early, we're the ones that miss out. These are the promises we have to anchor to and hold tightly to. So he sees them. He comes to their aid. And he meant to pass them by. I really think he never meant to get in the boat. I think he just meant to bring a change of circumstances to their struggle and to bring them to the other side. But that's not what happened, right? He, he gets in the boat, right? We, we know that he gets in the boat. What, why? Why does he get in the boat? Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Right? They, they, they're now seeing something that their physical eyes in this natural world have never seen before. And so their most logical conclusion is not, oh, hey, that's Jesus. He can do the impossible. Their most logical conclusion is, well, surely it's a ghost. Right? Like, this is a ghost coming to take our souls or do whatever that he wants to do. And so they're freaking out. And so the reason Jesus gets in the boat is because he's come to their aid, and their aid is no longer so much concerned with the wind. They're, they're, the need that they have is they're absolutely terrified by what they think to be a ghost. And so Jesus shifts his focus, he shifts his help to come to their troubled soul's aid. Right, the reason he gets in the boat is because he was coming to their help and now the most pressing help was the fact that they were terrified. And so he shifts their, his focus to come and to get in the boat. Man, I, like I'm embarrassed of how begrudgingly I wanna step in the boat with people's messes, right? Like, I just, if, I, if I'm really honest, like, there's just people that I'm like, I've just lost grace for it. I don't, I don't want to step in the mess, right? Especially if I've already gotten messy with them before. You know, especially if I've already, like, you know, washed their feet before, right? Why would I want to go back again? But not Jesus. I'm reading this book, Gentle and Lowly, Fantastic book. We got some copies out yonder if you want to grab one. And my friend Dane, he says uh, that Jesus is one with an unrestrained withness. That like his very nature wants to be with us. Charlie talked about this. When, when, when we're struggling, it, it just naturally pulls Jesus to us. I, I try to get away Jesus can't help but move near. 
because his love and grace, it's just drawn. It's the joy set before him, right? That, that he would come to our rescue and come to our aid. We have to know that in our struggle, not only does God see us, but it is his heart to move near to us. It is, it is his heart that when he's like, I'm coming to their aid, oh, your biggest aid now is in the boat, then I'm coming to the boat. I'm getting in the boat of your struggle with you. Gosh, the grace and love of Jesus. And so he tells them, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. It's the I am, be encouraged, don't be afraid. In the Greek, that, that is a present participle, which means it is a command for present action and ongoing repeated action. So really it's, hey, stop being afraid today and forever. That's the command that Jesus gives them, that his presence should command us to not be afraid. Because with him, what's, what's impossible? In Isaiah 43, God, God says, fear not, for I've called you by name. I've redeemed you, you are mine. When you walk through the fire, right? when you walk through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Why? Because God is with us. Because he's for us, because his heart is drawn towards us. He sees us and he moves near in help. So imagine right now, what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that if you're like, if this happens later today or tomorrow, I just, I don't know that I could handle it. It's gonna be too much. Maybe it's being rejected by someone that you love, putting yourself out there relationally and it not being reciprocated. Well, now we can imagine also, gosh, gee, God is with me in that. Like the God of this world is with me in that. Okay. Me and him, we can handle it. Maybe it's sickness, illness, death. Okay, if I get sick, the God of this world is with me in that. He has not left me. Okay, then we can overcome this. Maybe it's financial collapse, right? You just lose your resources. Okay, the God of this world is with me in that. I'm gonna be okay. Jesus tells us to not be afraid. But listen, and this is where, this is where to me it just gets really astounding. None of that will matter if we don't truly believe he is who he says he is. If we don't truly believe that he does see us and that he does move near and come to our aid. If our hearts are stubbornly hardened to the truth of God, it doesn't matter what he does. That's what happened here. That's what's astounding, right? Take heart as I do not be afraid, verse 51. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Why in the world were they astounded? They had just immediately seen Jesus feed a crew of over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Like he just literally did the impossible, 
right? We can just go back through Mark alone where he healed a man with an unclean spirit. He healed an entire town that came to him. He cleansed a leper. He heals a paralytic. He heals a man with, an, uh, with a withered hand. He calms a storm with his words. He heals the uncontrollable demon-possessed man. He healed the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. He raised a girl from the dead. And then he feeds the 5,000 plus with five loaves and two fish. And then they're astounded that he can walk on water? They're astounded that he can get in the boat and the wind stops? This is me to Miles. Why do you not get this? And how, why are they astounded? It's baffling, right? It's, abs it's absurd that they would be astounded at this. But Mark tells us why they were astounded. Because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They were astounded because when Jesus performed the miracle, they were still looking at it in some natural eyes with some stubborn heart that was like, there's gotta be some explanation for this. They were still unwilling to just fully trust Jesus and leave the results up to him. Their hearts were stubborn and hardened, hardened to what Jesus told them to do. But come on, like we read this and we're like, why do they not get it? If I was there, I'd be like all in, right? Like, of course. And yet here we sit having the same miracles recorded. Here we sit on the other side of Jesus dying three days in a tomb and resurrected, ascending to heaven. And here we sit still going, I don't know, I don't know. Here we sit saying, I'm gonna trust God no matter what. And then like an hour later, like oh, compromise. Man, I know what he says is true. Oh, he said that, shoot. I don't know if that's true. I'll follow him wherever he tells me to go. Not there. We do the same thing. Why? Because our hearts are hardened in the same way that the disciples were. Because we're unwilling to fully surrender to whatever he tells us to do. And the problem is that every time we stubbornly harden our hearts, the soil of our soul gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. It becomes more and more and more difficult to hear the Spirit and to walk in repentance and obedience. That's why Jesus is repeatedly trying to open their eyes to trust him with everything because it is best and when we don't we harden our hearts to who he is and what he has for us listen Jesus said this before he doesn't need us he, he wants us to trust him and obey him because it's best for us and for the glory of God. It's not because he's lacking something. When we glorify God, it is for our best because that's how we're designed. It's not that Jesus is not gonna be complete if the disciples don't obey him. He's gonna be just fine. 
He's still the Messiah. He's still the King of Kings. He's still God in human flesh. But the disciples are going to miss the beauty and glory that God has for them. And so Jesus is telling them and he's telling us, trust me, soften your hearts. Whatever I tell you to do, do it because I will lead you to the best possible results. May we not be hardened like the disciples and astounded at what shouldn't astound us anymore. We should just expect, I mean, this is what God said he's gonna do. Of course he's gonna do it. Perhaps the most astounding thing, though, second to the disciples' hard hearts, is the patient and steadfast love of Jesus. He doesn't chastise them. He's not walking by and they're like, ah, we're freaking out. And he's like, oh my gosh. Again? Forget it. You're on your own. Row. That's all. That's, honestly, that's what I would want to do. Don't act like you're, don't act like you're different. Right? I just fed the 5,000 people. And seriously? Nah, you're on your own. Forget it. Dane, he writes in the book, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not hard, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. I love this last line. The posture, the, shoot. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Gosh, I so quickly point a finger and get frustrated. And Jesus, who has every right to do that with me, his most natural position is not a pointed finger of frustration. You should be better than this. I've told you once, I've told you twice, I've told you a thousand times. It's open arms to receive us in steadfast love. Gosh, the, the kindness of God is meant to soften the hardest heart. And what we don't see in Mark, but Matthew records, Peter gets out of the boat as well, takes a step of faith, starts to sink because he starts looking at the circumstances around him, he freaks out. Jesus reaches down again and rescues him. Again, I'd be like, swim, swim on your own, Peter. Not Jesus. Then they get in the boat the wind ceases and it says that those in the boats worshiped God, worshiped Jesus and declared him the son of God for the first time they declare him, this is the son of God. I think Mark wants us to see the astounding hardness of their hearts and the astounding patience of Jesus and Matthew writes a little bit further and says, but something changed in that boat. Their hearts were softened by the kindness of Jesus and their lives were never the same. We're not in a boat, but we're in the same boat of repeated mistrust, of doubt and skepticism towards Jesus. And he's not here today pointing a finger at you 
He's not here today to condemn you or beat you over the head. With arms wide open and incredible patience and love, he's inviting you to something more that's found in trusting him. We all have, all of us have those things that we we naturally harden ourselves towards when it comes to what God tells us. His invitation to you is to trust him, to soften your hearts and to do what he says. Trust him when the storm is raging around you. Trust him when it is physically impossible because he's good for it. He's faithful to his word and his promises. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.